Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. What a beautiful song that encapsulates everything I'm going to talk about today. You deserve it all. You're worthy of glory. When churches forget that, the wheels come off and the whole thing goes sideways. Because what we'll inevitably do is put something besides Jesus in first place. And when we do that, you're going to get division. Because people are, by their nature, tribal. And what we do is we tend to focus on some unique difference, and then we coalesce around that difference, and then we cut off other people, and that becomes how we identify ourselves. And that becomes the keystone of our tribe. Uh, and it, sometimes our divisions can be silly. You got Ford guys and Chevy guys, right? And don't get around a couple of Ford or Chevy guys. If you don't want to hear an argument, don't bring it up, right? Miller uh, Beer Company did a deal years ago where they had this ad campaign, Taste Great, Less Filling. Do you remember that? And they would basically carve out their motto into those two parts and then get people screaming at each other, Taste Great, Less Filling. And that tribalism became sort of a, an obvious thing in that. Uh, gamers, don't, don't get around a bunch of gamers and ask them which is best, PlayStation or Xbox. You're going to get an earful because we can divide ourselves over just about anything. But sometimes the, the division is deadly serious. The racial differences, pandemic differences. Do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Do I get uh, a vaccine? No vaccine. You got anti-vaxxers and pro-vaxxers and all of this, and it becomes very heated and divisive. Uh, political differences, left and right, socioeconomic differences. You got the haves and the have-nots, and then there's that backward side of that uh, reaction. The have-nots sometimes uh, delegitimize the haves, and so you've got that going on. And then there's gender differences, and this stuff is all in play in the world outside of this room. And that becomes a, a mark of our nation. We're so divided. In fact, I've never read before so many different articles that are mentioning the word civil war in America. It's like these things are putting pressure on our e pluribus unum, right? And rather than America being the great melting pot, we look more like a jigsaw puzzle. But not here. It's not supposed to be that way. And yet churches... Struggle with divisiveness too. Let's face it, churches split a lot. Reminds me of the story of the guy that was trapped on the desert island and they finally came to rescue him and there were three small huts that he had built. And the guy said, what's that hut for? He said, that's my house. That's my home. That's where I live. He said, what about that other hut? He said, oh, that's my church. That's where I go to worship. He said, well, what about that third hut? He said, that's my old church. <laughs> you get one guy on a desert island and he'll have a church split. And you know, automatically, he was Baptist, right? <laughs> Churches struggle with this. They divide until they die. And that's what we see happening all around us as churches find more and more reason to carve themselves up until they become irrelevant. And then a storm like uh, the pandemic comes through and it sweeps through those already weakened congregations. And when it's done, there's almost nothing left to, to work with. I said this last time, division is the greatest danger of the church. And that's why Paul dedicated the last two chapters of the book of Romans uh, to this 
to this idea of staying together. Um, if you want to wrap up Romans with 15 and 16, it essentially says this, stay together. Now, Paul, remember, he wasn't in Rome. He had never visited Rome. He didn't know if he was ever going to get to Rome. And so these become sort of the last words that we have recorded of Paul's interaction with Rome. He would eventually get there, but he didn't know it at the time of this writing. And so he says, one thing, man, you guys have got to stay together. Now, obviously, there are things that are worth disagreement. The Bible is our authority, right? I compare the Bible, you know, some people are like, you know, they'll find their authority in other places. Even churches do that. And I compare it to a fence around the playground. You know, the Bible, the Scripture is like the fence around the playground. It has to be the final authority. Now, we may disagree about what it says from time to time, and we may have arguments underneath that, but the fence is around the playground, and so we're going to play in the safety of the playground and have agreements and agree to disagree at times. But there are people, even churches, that want to pull down that authority and find their authority somewhere else. It's like pulling the fence down around the playground. The next thing you know, the kids are playing in the street. And so if someone comes to you with a different gospel than the one that's derived from the Word of God or communicated out of the Word of God, then, yeah, it's time for a disagreement. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. And so don't tolerate that. Don't tolerate divisive people. Look at Romans 16, 17. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learn. seems like every church has at least one you know, this guy that was born in the kickative mood and baptized in vinegar, and he, you know, everything that ever happened, he's been against it. If you were to get up and vote for Jesus to come back tomorrow, he'd vote no. And, you know, for some reason, churches just tend to kind of tolerate those guys, I think because it's, it requires more to take them on. But here is the, look, don't settle for that. Some disagreements are important. Some disagreements are healthy. Sometimes we'll have a disagreement and I'll have a strong opinion. You'll have a strong opinion. And when we talk it out, I, I realize I was wrong or you realize you were wrong or we realize there's a second way to see this. And we, we gain from that. We draw from that. I'm not saying never disagree. I'm saying make unity a priority. Look at Romans 12. Back up. You know, it's funny. You can, you can, you can draw this scripture out and paint the cross references and never leave the book of Romans. Look, look back at Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Paul's not saying avoid conflict at all costs. He's saying avoid conflict if at all possible. In other words, work hard to stay together. And last time we talked about the two essentials to unity, right? You have to be unselfish. Here, here's where it begins and ends. It's not about you. This mission that we're on, this journey that we share, it's not about you. This isn't my church. Don't ever say, this is Bill Dye's church. This isn't my church. It's not your church. I pray all the time, God, help me to be wise in guiding your church. But this church doesn't belong to me. There's not a single thing in this church that bears my name. There's nothing about this church that belongs to me. And someday when uh, God says, Bill, I'm done with you here, uh, he's going to set me aside. He's going to bring somebody else in, and that person's going to guide and lead this church. And so my calling is to try to set aside my own preferences and never do what I would prefer, but do what I think is best in guiding the church toward the purpose and will of God. And the same is true for you. This isn't your church either. Yeah, I get it. I mean, we belong to this church. This is our family. But we don't own this church. It's not about us. If we're going to stick together, we've got to, at times, yield our rights 
yield our personal preferences and say, you first. But concurrent with that, you also have to be inclusive. We talked about the unselfishness thing last time. Let's talk about the inclusive thing today. Look at Romans chapter 15. Let's look at verse 7. Romans 15 verse 7. It says, accept one another. You see that? Now that word accept occurs only five times in the New Testament. And four of those times is right here in Romans 14 and 15. It's a word that's a combination of two Greek words, proslambano. Lambano means to receive or accept. So if you were to offer me a gift, I would lambano. I would receive your gift. But the word pros changes it slightly because the word pros means to or toward. And so the idea is that I receive the gift to myself. I pull the gift into myself. I take to myself. And so at the end of the day, that's what he's talking about here. You're pulling people in. You're not holding them at arm's length. You're embracing him. You're holding him close. Now look, that's an easy assignment when he looks like you or thinks like you or dresses like you or loves what you love, or laughs at your jokes, or enjoys your cooking. Those are the people it's easy to pull in. But what about the people that are fundamentally different from you? They don't see life the way you see it. They don't look like you. They don't always think like you. What do you do then? How can we stay together when we are, in fact, so very different? So let me offer some insights out of Romans 15 and 16, okay? And we can't cover the whole thing, and Paul's wrapping things up, but let's, uh, let's look at Romans 15 and 16 and sort of capture the heart of God for that church because Paul wanted them to stay together. Here's the first thing. We have to see like the Father sees. See like the Father sees. Here's the thing I think sometimes is missed. God loves variety. He loves variety. You know, I sometimes hear people say, God's colorblind. They're talking about race. God's colorblind. And I get what they're saying. What they're saying is God doesn't give preference to one race over another. He's colorblind. But God's not colorblind. He sees color. He loves color. He paints in vivid color. God is an artist. I think that's one of the things that the church fails to understand because we want him to be a mechanic and there's this mechanical aspect of his created order and so God's a mechanic and everything's going to work robotically. But that's not really the image or the portrait that, that you see. You know, the, the, Paul says that his, uh, he's, he's revealed in what he's created. So look at his creation. What are the first words of, of the Bible, of God's love letter to us? What are the, what's the first thing it says? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, what? Created. He's a lefty. He's a southpaw. He's an artist. He loves variety and mess and color and, uh, you know, all of that. I, I read this years ago, and I, uh, I thought it was fascinating. Scientists have identified nearly a million different kinds of insects in the world, and they're discovering 7,000 new species every year. Get this. There are over 300,000 different types of beetles. Not... John Paul, Ringo, and George, not, not those beetles. B-E-E-T-L-E-S, beetles. 300,000 different types of beetles. And I, I read that and I go, wouldn't 100,000 types be enough? And I could just see God, you know, making beetles and going, oh, wait, I got an idea. I could make a beetle with a big horn on it. Let's see what, you know, that's what artists do. 
It's what creative people do. Phil Yancey put me on to this years ago. He wrote this whole book called I Was Just Wondering. Great book if you can find it. And he said, why is it that the most beautiful animals on earth are hidden away from all humans except those wearing elaborate scuba equipment? Who are they beautiful for? God made things for himself. He's an artist. He loves variety. We're the ones that insist on uniformity. We're the ones that want everything to look the same. I mean, watch this. You've got a beautiful field. You see them all the time in Louisiana. You've got this beautiful field, and it's covered with a hundred different kinds of flowers. You've got little white clover and purple clover and white flowers. I don't even know what they are, you know. All these beautiful different flowers and different levels of grasses. Some are tall, and they're blowing in the wind, and some are shorter. What do we do when we see a field like that? What's the first thing we do? We mow it. <laughs> and then what do we do? We plant grass, a type of grass, a specific type of grass, San Augustine, Bermuda, centipede, something. But we want all the grass to be the same. And then what do we do? We go to war with every plant that's not like our grass. And we call that a weed. Why is it a weed? Because I don't want it. And we do that with everything. We build houses that look the same. We wear clothes that look the same. I mean, today women are wearing jeans that look like they were dragged through gravel. <laughs> They look like the kind of jeans we used to cut off. You know, Amy came home. She's missing the knees of the jeans. I'm like, you been shopping? She said, yeah. Goodwill? No, these are brand new. Brand new, eh? You got to spend some money to make them look like that. They got to spend some extra time tearing those pants up. But man, they've all got them. That's what we do. We love uniformity. We're drawn to it. Everyone wants to stand out by fitting in, but God loves variety. And we need to learn to see life from His perspective and see people as He sees them. He says, accept one another. Draw them in. Bring them close. They may not be like you, even when they don't look like you, think like you, because God has put them here with a unique something that you desperately need. Because in His design, there's also synergy. Synergy means that when you and I get together, two plus two equals three. There's something more powerful with us together than the, the sum of our parts. And there are things that you know that I don't know, and there are gifts that you have that I don't have. And so if I insist on everyone being like me, then I'm insisting on the world being terribly limited. And I miss the beauty of the creation. i got to learn to see like God sees. Second, we have to love like Jesus loves. Romans 15, 7, accept one another, now read the rest of it, just as Christ accepted you. Let me ask you something. How did Jesus accept you? Did he accept, did he accept me after I got my life together and started looking more like him and thinking more like him and acting more like him? Is that how he accepted me? Stay in Romans. Go back to 5, verse 10. For while we were enemies, you got that? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. There's your answer. Christ loved us and died for us while we were still enemies. Here's how Jesus accepted us. He loved us when we hated Him. 
That's how he accepted us. He didn't say, you got to look a certain way, you got to act a certain way. Man, when I came to, to Christ, I was a mess. I, my hair was 1970s hair. It was parted in the middle, Farrah Fawcett wings. Does anybody else remember that? Breaking on my shoulders. I'm so grateful that the church that I went into didn't say, hey man, you got to cut your hair before you can come in here. They accepted me even as Christ accepted me. Now look, God loves you just the way you are. He loves you too much to leave you that way. He's going to accept you and He does just as you are. That's how Christ loves you. But He loves you too much to leave you in that condition. That's why He went to the cross. He died for your sin so that you can be forgiven and healed. And then He wants you to live the righteousness of Christ and enjoy the blessing that God has for every one of His children. He wants to pour that out on you. And so He's not going to leave you like you are, but He accepts you just like you are. And that's what we do. We accept them the way, accept one another even as Christ accepted you. And then the third thing is we have to value what the Bible says. The authority of the Bible has to dominate our thinking. Proverbs 13, 13 says, the one who neglects the word will be indebted to it. See, here's the problem that they struggled with in the, in the Roman church. In the Roman church, the Jews were racist against the Gentiles. Their whole life, they were taught they were the chosen, which meant everyone else was not. And they focused on that. In fact, uh, the Tosefta Barakat 6.18 teaches that Rabbi Yehuda ben Elay used to tell every Jewish man that he was obligated to recite three blessings daily. Thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And in earlier formations, it was a pig. Every day, every Jewish boy was taught to recite the prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not, I wasn't born a Gentile, a woman, or a pig. It kind of lumps those three together. And that's the way they thought. And so they have these feelings of animosity toward the Romans. Well, look, the Gentiles were racist against the Jews. And that same racial prejudice went the other way. They hated their self-righteous legalism. They hated the way they dressed. They hated their smug feelings of spiritual superiority. They hated their sharp business practices. They hated the way they banded together and how they wouldn't join the rest of the world. They hated that the Jews worshipped a different God. In fact, they hated them so much that Emperor Claudius finally said, get all these stinking Jews out of my city. Those weren't his exact words, but that was the essence of it. All they do is cause problems, get them out. In fact, Acts 18.2 talks about these two uh, Jews who had become Christians, um, who had Paul had run, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who Paul had run into, who were refugees from Rome. Uh, the Roman historian Suetonius talks about it as well. And so the racism of Paul's day wasn't skin color. It was Jew versus Gentile. So when you're in Rome, it's Jew versus Roman. When you're in Greece, it's Jew versus uh, Grecian. And, and all that animosity doesn't suddenly vanish when you go to church. So how do you break it down? How do you bring these two radically different groups together? You have to put them under a higher authority. So look at verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises to the Father. So God became a servant to the Jews through the cross because of His promises to Abraham. But keep reading. Verse 9, 
and for the Gentiles. You see this? This is the other side of it. To, glory, to glorify God for His mercy. So Jesus served the Gentiles to demonstrate His mercy. Now here's the key word. As it is written. Do you see that? Underline that part. As it is written. Because you know what He's about to do? He's about to quote the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. As it is written. And watch, if you're reading this in the New American Standard, you'll notice that the words are in all caps. That's because whenever they would quote the Old Testament, they would put it in all caps. So here's what's written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples praise him. And again, look, again and again and again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And you know what he's doing? Paul is using the Bible to suss out any residual racism and resentment because he is appealing to a higher authority. The authority of Scripture has to have greater weight than my personal feelings or my cultural legacy. And the Bible delegitimizes division. So if I'm being divisive through my prejudice or my misconceptions or whatever, then I'm outside the authority of the Word of God and I need to repent and come under the authority of Word of God because the Word of God trumps my feelings. And that's exactly what... Paul is appealing to it. If you legitimize it, you're outside the authority of the Word. Because here's what the Word says, Colossians 3.11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And he repeats this again in Galatians with a slight twist. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Let me show you something interesting in chapter 16. 16 is one of those, you can't really preach Romans 16 because it's one of those, he's just saying goodbye. It's like, hey, tell Joe I said hi. Tell, tell Freddie, hey, you know, I'm planning to go here. I'm planning to go there. It's hard to sort of draw that out. And, and, but, but there's some stuff here I wanted. Let me show you a couple things, okay? Stick with me. First, watch the wonderful way he affirms the women. Now, when you read this, you got to keep in mind that in that world, in the Jewish mind, they were reciting this thing that said, I thank you, God, I wasn't born a, a Gentile, a woman, or a pig. Okay, you got it? So where does that put women in their social strata? Well, they're somewhere above a pig. But watch what Paul does. 16 verse 1. I commend to you my sister Phoebe. Phoebe is the first person mentioned that he wants to talk about in Romans 16. These are his last words he's saying by, and the first person he mentions is a woman, not a man. Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Wow. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers. Prisca is a shortened form of Priscilla and Aquila. And so they're back in Rome. When we first met Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Paul was doing ministry with them in a tent-making service, and that, that became sort of their, their, their uh, point of connection, uh, and they were followers of Christ. But notice something about it. When we first met them, it was Aquila 
and Priscilla. Watch this, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. It was Aquila and Priscilla. But now it's what? Greet Prisca and Aquila. It's Priscilla and Aquila. There's been a, a flip. And scholars would say that was intentional because it's highly likely that Priscilla would have been the stronger servant of Christ in that relationship. 16.6, greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. You know, what we see here is that Paul is valuing the contribution of these vital female team members. In fact, there are 28 names included, in, including mother and sister in this uh, Romans 16, and 10 of those 28 names are female. I took a picture of it so you could see it. Everything in yellow is female, and the gray is the, ma- the men. Isn't that fascinating in a world that was so hard on women? In a world where women were generally denigrated, the church was a place where women were elevated. Because they understood the complementary nature of their different gender gifts. We forget that, man. I look at the world today, and I can't imagine what a horrible world it would be if we didn't hear from the women. I look at my own house. I looked at Amy one day, and I said, you realize if you didn't live here, there wouldn't be a single flower. There wouldn't be a single candle. There wouldn't be a single picture. I cannot imagine a situation, a scenario, where I would willingly spend the time to hang a picture. I just wouldn't do it. You go to these guys' camps, there might be some deer heads on the wall, probably not any pictures. I would estimate very few flowers. Women beautify whatever world they come into, and they have this unique perspective that absolutely has to be heard, and Paul valued that. But secondly, watch the wonderful way he affirms every person. He mentions a couple of Jewish people, Andronicus and Junius, okay? And then there's several Greek names, and then he mentions Herodian, a fellow Jew, and then some more Greek and Romans names. But I wanted you to stop at Romans 13, and, and I know it's getting late, but let me, let me introduce you to this guy, Rufus, okay? Romans 16, 13, look here. Greet Rufus. I love that. Choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, Rufus was a nickname that meant red or red-headed. But in this case, this Rufus was not red-headed. This Rufus later was known in the Catholic Church as St. Rufus, was the son of a man named Simon. So here's the backstory: When Jesus was being crucified, he walked from uh, where he was condemned to Calvary or Golgotha, and he had to carry his own cross. Maybe you remember that part of the story. Historians would say that he probably didn't carry the whole cross, but only the cross beam. But Jesus, having already been scourged and having been awake all night and having been beaten repeatedly by the Romans, was physically, emotionally exhausted. And so at one point in carrying his cross to Golgotha, he stumbled and fell. There was a man there watching this macabre parade play out His name was Simon of Cyrene. Remember that name? And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. So Simon picks up the cross and he carries Jesus' cross. 
Now, Simon later became a committed follower of Christ. And if you can imagine how he began to understand the cross in ways you and I never would, that he carried Jesus' cross, but that Jesus carried his cross and how all that kind of worked out. His name was Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a country in northern Africa. Most historians believe that this man was almost certainly black. And he had two sons. You know what their names were? Alexander and Rufus. How do we know? Mark 15, 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father, father of Alexander, and there he is, Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, years later, revival breaks out in this town called Antioch because some men from Cyrene had come there, men so full of the Spirit that God used them to initiate this revival in Antioch. Barnabas was there. Barnabas says, something's going on. He goes and gets Paul. Paul comes back, and there's this explosion of the gospel going into the Gentile world. So much so that the church in Jerusalem gets a little jiggy with it, and they got to go down there and kind of explain themselves. But after that, they decide, hey, we need to send Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. And so the elders of that church got together and they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets, teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. There are five names mentioned. Barnabas, a wealthy Jew, Manan, a wealthy Jew, Paul, a brilliant Jew, Lucius of Cyrene, an African, and Simeon. And that's a different version of the word Simon. That's him. Yeah, that's him. Same guy who carried the cross. He's in Antioch, and he's an elder. And notice his nickname, Niger. That's Latin for black. The reason they didn't translate it is because it was in Latin. When they translate the language, they translate the Greek to the English. But if there's a foreign language, they leave it in the foreign language. For example, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason they didn't translate that out of the Hebrew and Aramaic is because they wanted them to hear the words that Jesus spoke in the language they were spoken. This is in Latin, not Greek. The the Greek word for black is manon, not Uh, Niger. But the Latin word is Niger, meaning this is a guy who's a black dude. Simon Niger was so respected in the church that he was one of the five elders of Antioch. Now, 25 years after he's carried that cross, his son is mentioned. What would it be like, man, for you to get mentioned in God's word forever and your son to be mentioned too? And Paul says, greet Rufus. You see it? A choice man in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. (laughs) I love that. His mom is like a mama to me. He's my brother from another mother. That's what he just said. And here's what I want you to hear. Paul was, uh, Rufus was a black African. Paul was a Middle Eastern Jew. There's not a whiff of racism anywhere. And here's the point. These people were not excluded from the team because they were female or some other race or some other layer of society. And they weren't included on the team 
because they were female or some other race or from some other layer of society. They were there because each one of them had personally encountered the life-changing power of God, and they had allowed the Holy Spirit to build the nature of Christ into their lives, and they had yielded their lives to His service. The reason they were on the team was because they had that one powerful, all-encompassing, unifying aspect. Jesus was in them, and He was on them, and He was through them. And that trumped everything else. The church put no merit in race or economics. The church valued the character of a person's heart, and that's why it was powerful. Look, there's no division over gender, race, social standing. Christ is all and in all. He's made every tribe into one. We're the ones that are tribal. He's made every tribe into one. We have to be unified. And to do that, we got to see the way God saw, we got to love the way Jesus loved, and we got to put our personal junk under the authority of Scripture. And when we're outside of that, we need to repent. There's nothing more impotent than a church divided, nothing. But there's nothing more powerful than a church united. Two things unite us sacrifice, inclusion. When I stop looking at what divides me and instead I focus on the Jesus that's in you, I got all I need to be your brother. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. Amen. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's our calling. That's our purpose. Let nothing ever cause us to be divided from that. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for this truth that calls us to higher things, challenges us, forces us to deal with our own preferences and our own prejudices. And we yield that before you, Father. It's not about us. We will not be selfish. We will seek your will. And Father, we will not let intolerance, prejudice, or any of that other junk keep us from coming together. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Scythian, slave or master, male or female, but in Christ we're all one. May that be true of this church and churches all around us. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.